0: Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. Welcome today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast, and our title is Becoming a Team That Goes Back to Go Forward, and it's really part two. Uh, I had so much I could not say last week, and I'm very excited about part two of this week. You know, Jesus in uh, John 2 and uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we see him uh, cleansing the temple, and he says, uh, my father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, and The disciples remember that verse in Psalm sixty-nine, where it says, "Zeal for thy house will consume me." And you know, we are the leaders uh, in God's church, and uh, in a sense, we're like the money changers. We're the ones that are like the gatekeepers, and people come to our churches and our ministries to hopefully meet Jesus, and uh, we want to be a people who are our house has been cleansed. And teams where people get through, go through us and meet Jesus, and uh, there's no obstacles in the way there. And so, the focus here on teams uh, for these few weeks is really it, it's us getting our house in order as goes the leader, so goes the church, uh, so that people can come and meet Jesus through our particular callings and ministries and and different anointings of our charisms. And so. One of the pillars of EH discipleship is going back to go forward and and this development and using genograms as a tool to get beneath the iceberg of obstacles within us and our teams that may be holding back the work of God uh, in and through us. And so uh, I mentioned last week that we just released these three experiences for you and your team to do, kind of EHD team uh, uh, essentials uh, to get at beneath the iceberg kind of Material so that God can transform us and, and thus our churches. And so uh, we've worked, been working for 24 years in these experiences. So, one's explore the genogram, which is our thrust for today. The second is rediscover Sabbath, and the third is craft a rule of life. And uh, you could do them in any kind of an order, but uh, I want to encourage you to go to emotionallyhealthy.org/team and uh, download those and actually do it. And in particular, we're gonna talk about Going Back to Go Forward and Genogram today. So again, our title today is Become a Team That Goes Back to Go Forward. And so I want you to really think with me on, on three kind of major categories, and we're gonna spend really the bulk of our time on the second category. So the first is, very simply, think theologically with me for a moment. Just think theologically. We're formed and shaped and discipled by our families of origin growing up, the first you know 16 to 20 years. Uh, Christian or not, we're, we're shaped and formed, we're molded by that experience of living in the context of a, of a system. Uh, and the blessings and sins of our families go back generations. And, and it, it's, 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 it lives in our bones in all of how we do life. Uh, then we come to Jesus, come to faith in Jesus. At some point, we're adopted into his new family. And it's a miracle, you know, it's born from above. And now we have a new father, new inheritance, new family. But discipleship is the putting off of the sinful patterns of our uh, culture and our family of origin and learning to, how do I live life in Jesus' family? How do I get at it? And the problem is, as leaders, we're all so busy. You know, we've got goals. We've got, you know, we're, we're building something. We've got programs. And, and we just end up skimming on discipleship. It's, it's uh, We don't get deep beneath the iceberg, the nine-tenths of the material. So God, God wants to free our people, wants to free our churches and ministry so that we are a gift to the world. But that means... We've got to get ourselves free, and this is the task of the church, to form people, to make disciples, to shape people as they come out of families of origin and cultures, um, that they come now in this new family of Jesus, now by the Holy Spirit, and and under us as Ephesians for leaders, you know, apostles, pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists, we are we're the equipers, we're, we're shaping people, and we want to... Uh, and our ministry here, Emotionally the Discipleship, is to help you make deeply changed disciples and leaders. We must go first. That's why teams are so important. And we want to free our people for, for their unique destiny in God. And it has rightly been said that 85% of the people in our churches are stuck spiritually. And and uh, we want them to, to even see that the, the, the pain and suffering of their past, not only is it lessened when it's clarified, it actually becomes a cause, cause of celebration when we look at our past and we mine it for gold, that's buried beneath a rubble of pain and, and sorrow. And by going back to go forward, we help people see the, the riches. And I think of, of what's there, even in the pain and sorrow, that there's gold in there that's meant to be a gift for the world. And I think of Joseph, of course, uh, in Genesis, whose uh, horrific pain of his life but he minds it, grieves it, brings it back to the Father, and he ends up becoming a blessing to the nations and says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I was with a, uh, a friend this past week who came into EH discipleship late in life and, and found her voice. She realized she, she lost her voice and her family of origin and then her marriage. But it really was deep and went way back. And, but she found her voice, um, and uh, she's a different person. It's remarkable. And, uh, but out of that pain of having lost a voice for decades now is a passion and a clarity to communicate about finding your voice. That's just a marvel to behold. And every time I listen to her, I'm like, wow. And she has a message that, you know, flows out of a deep place. And I, another friend of ours who was, uh, severely abused as a child, um, uh, under 10, uh, and, came to faith in Jesus and now as uh, you know, an older person is passionate and has been for decades for children and uh, as an incredible gifting and anointing that flows out of a deep place of not having had uh, a family, but what she found in Jesus. And, and again, EH discipleship has helped I mine that, I think, and now it comes out with a power and a clarity. I think of even myself, you know, and uh, i being stuck at a wall. For so many years as a as a disciple and as a leader, with a limited theology uh, of discipleship and leadership uh, for so long, with such enormous pain, that uh, when, you know, God, it's like God set me up to receive the revelation and nothing was wasted. And I remember saying to a mature mentor at one point, you know, why did God wait so long, all those wasted years? And 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 uh, he said to me, nothing was, you know, nothing was wasted. It was all in the, in the sovereignty and the plan of God. And I've had, you know, I, I've had said to me and I realized myself that It was all those years of apparent waste and loss that really did something in my soil so that when I came into what we call E.H. discipleship today and a broader theology of some of the missing pieces of discipleship and theology, uh, it just transformed me it just I mean I here I am 20 you know five years later with a passion because I, I want I, this is what we do we want to get at people's history and their story so they're deeply transformed by Jesus and can m- multiply disciples and make an impact on the world so you, you want to get people at their unresolved family of origin issues uh, and we want to lessen the impact of our family of origin unresolved issues on our teams um so that we can be a gift to our churches. Again, as goes the leader, so goes the church. And we can't bring people where we have not gone ourselves. So first is you want, you want to think theologically. But I want to spend the bulk of our time today on on, on, the, on the second major point. I want to. I just mentioned it briefly last week, but I want to really expand on it this week, which is to think of leadership as inner work to define yourself in Jesus, not growing in expertise. I'll say that again. I'll repeat it a couple of times through this section. It, it's thinking of leadership as an inner work to define yourself in Jesus and not necessarily growing in expertise. That's not the focus. Remember, differentiation is, is learning to define yourself. It's growing in that. And, and def- differentiation can be defined as remaining connected to people, yet not having your reactions or behaviors determined by them. And there's two critical components when we talk about uh, defining yourself or differentiation. One is the ability to distinguish thinking and feeling. In other words, you don't get so triggered and emotional that you just start making just impulsive decisions and reactions and you're triggered and you, you do things that aren't, aren't logical because it's it, you, you're unable to distinguish between thinking and feeling. It's a very key factor. So my body may be freaking out um, and having all this turmoil again, out of my family of origin, but I'm going to actually have this conversation with this other leader, uh, maybe who reports to me, and it's going to be a difficult conversation because I'm going to say some things that they may not like, they're not going to validate me, but I, I'm not going to listen to my body at this point. Uh, and as a moment I don't listen to my feelings, and I follow Jesus and have that difficult conversation in a mature way. That's, so a critical component of differentiation is the ability to distinguish thinking from feeling. And the second critical component is the ability to be a, an I while remaining in relationship with others. In other words, you don't—you're able to be a separate from them, uh, even regardless of the anxiety happening in the system. There, you're able to be a, an I, a, a separate person, and yet stay connected for them from them. And the great story I like to use is meant so many people when they turn, you know, 16, 17, they, I'm, I'm going to move to the other part of the country to get away from my family because it drives me crazy. But your family is still, you're still fused with your family because they're, they're determining your, your decisions. They're, they're controlling your decision. They may live thousands of miles away, uh, but you're not able yet to be separate while remaining connected. you got to cut yourself off from them. Uh, so so th- thus we can consistently and calmly tell others what we think and feel. Without demanding that they think and feel the same way we do, so that's why, like in some ways, you could define differentiation as emotional maturity. And you know, the end of the emotionally healthy relationships uh, course uh, workbook uh, is a really good uh, list of 15 qualities of a highly differentiated person. And and actually, again, that's part of the goal of the whole EH discipleship course and uh, and the relationships. So we, as a team, as teams, we want you want to you want to like have this oozing out of you so here, here's some of the qualities of a, a a highly differentiated leader who's done inner work to define themselves in jesus and 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 so for example i first one is i'm, I'm deeply convinced that i'm loved by jesus and i don't need to inappropriately borrow that love from other people uh, i'm able to leave my family of origin uh, and function as an inner directed separate adult uh, i'm deeply in tune with my emotions and feelings I'm able to listen with empathy without having to fix, change, or save other people. I can speak clearly, honestly, and respectfully on my own behalf. I can express my anger, my hurt, my fear without blaming or appeasing or holding grudges. Uh, I, can va- I value my own dignity as a human being through self-respect and, and, and self-care. I walk in community with others while respecting each person's uniqueness, each person's individual journey. I can receive criticism without becoming defensive. I can state my own beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. The list goes on. Risk goes on. I I live in truth, not pretense or spin or exaggerations. I I can negotiate and respect and celebrate differences, and I'm willing to initiate and repair relationships as much as possible uh, when they've been ruptured. Sometimes they can't be repaired, but I I'm able to initiate and repair them. Uh, And so that's a person who's highly differentiated, who's done some good work of defining themselves in Jesus as they lead. But a lowly differentiated person is a person who who most of their self is is a false self and is reflected from others. And, uh, you know, often preach one set of principles but but live another. And, you know, excited and soaring and self-esteem when they're complimented and crushed by by criticism. And often make poor decisions uh, out of stress uh, when they're under pressure. So again, it's not expertise, but self-differentiation that makes a leader. And think of Jesus for a moment here, and he was 100% differentiated. That, that was his source of authority. Uh, he had authority from the Father, he was so anchored. And Murray Bowen, the founder of family systems theory in the 50s and 60s, and he, he talked a lot about the false self. And actually, if you look through church history, that, that term false self was used quite a bit, uh, or pseudo self, and we all have that. Uh, and it's, it's created by, you know, the emotional pressure of life, and we get it from others, especially as we're growing up, and it's going to negotiate and find our way in, in the relational systems we're part of. It's conforming to other people. It's like being an actor or an actress. You know, we have and we, we put on different selves. We act different ways with different sets of people without necessarily being true to who we uniquely are. If you've never seen the movie uh, by Woody Allen, it's an old movie called Zelig, and it's really worth watching, Uh he, and because Zelig, uh, the main character of the movie, Leonard Zelig, uh, he's famous for being nobody. He, he, he so wants to fit in and be liked. He unwittingly takes on the characteristics of the strong personalities around him. He, he, he so wants to conform and he so wants to be universally liked. Uh, the, and, and it's really quite funny, but it's like a sickness. And he's with a you know, psychoanalyst trying to get cured of this. Uh, but it's it's super low differentiation. And the less a person is differentiated, the more of a fake self they have. Uh, and I'm sure you can relate to this. I know I can. the, the less w- when our words that we speak get ahead of our life, uh, it's one of the indications we're living out of a false self. And the real measure of your sense of self is when we spend three days with our f- parents or our family of origin. Uh, that, that tells you a lot about your level of differentiation. Because we so often tend to revert back to being whatever birth order we were—the youngest, the baby, the middle child—certain how we function in the system. It's amazing. I'm going to be with my siblings. Uh, you know, we go over a weekend together uh, every year, and uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating how we, you know, function together because we live together in those early years. But remember, when you leave home, you're at your parents' level of emotional health and differentiation. Uh, it's just, how could you be any different? Because whatever your parents were level, you think of zero to hundred. That's the level you would emerge with. And but the beautiful thing is, we make a little bit of change, even a slight change in our own uh, self differentiation or clarity about who we are in Jesus. Uh, it, it, it impacts everybody around us. Has a big power uh, difference. Let me just, let me just share with you a couple of biblical stories. The first two are about Jesus. The third one about Peter. And uh, the first comes from John thirteen. Uh, John 13 where where we see Jesus uh washing the feet of the disciples and again we get a real glimpse of the source of his authority his 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 uh his inner work of he he knows who he is and who he isn't uh and he doesn't get his authority from any academic institution or the size of his ministry or having gone to the best rabbinical school he has a he has a deep sense of himself and John 13 begins by this when the uh, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. It says this, Jesus knew the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he's got a tremendous sense of who he is. And so he gets up from the meal and he takes off his outer clothing and he wraps a towel around his waist and is washing the disciples' feet. He begins washing Judas' feet and Peter's feet. And it's amazing. But out of his deep sense of self and his relationship with the father, he just knew who he was. Uh, and he's on his way to a crucifixion. But he got his identity uh, from, you know, early on from his baptism, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Uh, and that's what enabled him to resist the temptations of the wilderness. When the devil came and, said, came and said, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, you know, jump down from the temple, turn these stones to bread, uh, you know, bow to me for just a moment, you'll get all the kingdoms. But Jesus was able to resist those temptations because he had a uh, a great sense of him, his self in relationship to the Father and to other people uh, and thus he could do things that would be incredibly radical he was, it's amazing and we want to have that kind of source of authority in our own liter- leadership and ministries by growing in our uh, own level of differentiation and, and our inner work of defining ourselves, that's the great challenge of leadership along the way the second story is uh, from Luke 2 when Jesus' parents uh, go to Jerusalem for Passover and he's 12 years old and if you remember the story, the festival's over, his parents are returning home, but they the, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and the disciples and his parents weren't aware of it. And a day later, it says, when they, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began to look for him and they, went, they couldn't find him. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple court sitting among the teachers and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him were amazed at his answers. And it's just quite an interesting story, you know, because you think, did his parents sleep for those three days? I mean, three days looking for their twelve-year-old son. I, I don't know. It's good. I doubt it. You know, and 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 it says his mother said to him, "Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you." And and Jesus says, "Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house?" But they did not understand what he was saying to them, and and it was, and then it says that you know Mary pondered these things in her hearts, and so we see Jesus. He's belonging to his family, uh, but he's also separate. He, you know, he's connected to the father. And his differentiation shakes up the, the family system, it's the status quo. And he's only, a, you know, he's not quite a teenager yet. And the and the first response of people in the temple to him is they're amazed because it, it, they can't believe what's in him. And it happens a lot when we even see our own grown-up children sometimes and outside our family system, we're like, wow, look at them in that play or their career. And uh, because they're outside the system and they realize, wow, they're emerging. But it's interesting that, they're in a, that his parents are in a crisis mode. Why are you treating us like this? And there's great anxiety. But Mary uh, takes it in, she treasures it. What's this boy about? You know, and it shows her own maturity in respecting his separateness and his maturity. And the third story, fascinating as we talk about self-differentiation is John 21, when Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And it says Peter's hurt by the third time and stressed out. And uh, and then Jesus says to Peter, you know, when you, you were younger, when you were younger, you did what you wanted. You dressed yourself, went what you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will lead you where you do not want to go. And uh, Jesus said this to indicate he's going to be crucified, His, the death that's awaiting him. And then Jesus says to Peter, follow me. But then Peter looks at His disciple looked at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and said, "What about him?" And uh, uh, and Jesus basically says to him, "What what a what a statement! He's calling Peter to grow up uh, in his own self differentiation, who his God's unique plan for his life. Not over. Don't worry about John's life. This other apostle here. And uh, Jesus says, "If you want, if I want him to remain until I return, what's that to you? And you must follow me." And Peter does what's called, in systems theory, he forms a triangle. He's under anxiety with him and Jesus, so he gets he, he takes the pressure off by looking at John. He goes to a third party, that's a triangle, it's three points to it. When there's pressure in a two-person relationship, when you go to a third party to take the pressure off, that's called a triangle. And the triangle introduces a third person to the anxiety, and it's an attempt to restore calm, but now it actually spreads it, it doesn't resolve anything. It, it's so automatic, you know, we all do it, it's unconscious. Um, Something hopefully we don't do as much, you know, as we grow. But, you know, parents do it with children, right? Parents are having a lot of uh, tension, so they get one of the children involved. And uh, couples do it with a friend. They have tension in their marriage, so they get a third person involved. In an unhealthy way, the wife goes to her best friend or husband to his best friend. Uh, Businesses do it. Schools do it. Churches do it. So uh I mean my mother did it. I was parentified. My my mother and father did not have a good relationship, so my mother basically confided in us as children. And we were parentified. It was like we were substitute spouses and it was a triangle. Uh and it happens in in leadership, right? The church becomes the mistress. You're you're married perhaps, but then you've got this mistress in in the marriage, which is the church and uh and but it could be a third person in in a, in a two-person system it could be a TV set, it could be sports, it could be the internet, it could be uh, social media could be porn. It could be workaholism. But if you think about it, what was a major triangle in your home growing up? Uh, and uh, mine was very obvious to my mother. and But, you know, and how do you do triangles? But again, part of the key of being emotionally healthy, mature person is that you speak in the eye uh, and you have direct relations with people. And I want to tell you how I'm feeling and experiencing you. And, and that's one of the key skills of uh, emotionally healthy relationships and and it's, it's got to be learned and to help people grow in differentiation so you want to think leadership as an inner work to define yourself in Jesus not the focus is not oh let me become a bit growing in expertise let me just get better how do I delegate people how do I delegate and how do I preach better and how do I lead teams better and how do I um how do I set goals how do I do budgeting I mean it's all good but that's not the core challenge of growing as a leader it's, it's your inner work to define yourself in Jesus so just for you know, let me just you my, my, my own story of, of growing in differentiation, and I'm still growing, of course, you know, as I came to Christ at 19, I had very low differentiation, very little self-awareness because my family didn't, didn't we didn't do feelings, we didn't talk about the past or sadness or whatever. So when I started this going back to go forward, I was in, you know, my 36, 37 years old. And, um, you know, at that point, I blocked out so much from my past because it was so painful. And I was so afraid that if I open this up, I'll die. Uh, and so I was a very, in my early years of leadership, I was very confusing as a leader to follow as a pastor because I had these great visions. But because I was so concerned about what people thought of me and to look good, uh, I often would take on other people's visions because I didn't want them to leave and participate. And I wanted to be liked. It was very important to me. And so we had four or five different visions going on at the church at the same time. But of course, push came to shove. It was always you know, my passion and vision that was going to win out. But it was just confusing because I, I would appear strong at some times as a leader. And then other times I'd be a total weakling and, and crumble. And, uh, and so when I had gotten this emotionally healthy journey uh, in 1994, 596, wow, uh, that was a huge shift for me in terms of growing in differentiation. First in my marriage and with myself, I began to be honest with people. No, I stopped lying to people. I began to be vulnerable I uh, began to look at things like my genogram and how my family of origin impacted me, which was, again, I was leading the church more out of my family than I was out of my out of, my, out of the new family of Jesus. And I got into therapy. It was began to read a lot about family systems and uh, feel. I began to look at the past. I was such a people pleaser. It was a revolution uh, to begin to listen to Jesus inside of me and uh, yet stay connected to people. And then I went in, a few years later and, and got a doctorate in marriage and family. Uh, in family systems theory, because so I was reading a lot of books like Ed Friedman uh, and others. In fact, I'll, I'll put on the bottom of our blog when I send it out uh, with this podcast, I'll put some books that I recommend you maybe pick up around family systems theory, some that have done good theology around it. But I spent four years on a doctoral program uh, working in, on family systems theory. Uh, it was a tremendous program. I wish it existed that I had recommended it to It doesn't exist. Um, and uh, But one of the assignments in one of the years was to do a genogram a full genogram of your family over a full year period where you would interview every living member of your family and do a, a massive genogram and the goal was to look at how those influences impacted who you are today and um, Boy, I mean, talking. I mean, every family has secrets. The sicker the family, the more secrets. I mean, you find out things you don't want to find out. So people in our class flew back to Poland. They they flew back to to, to China to meet family relatives. I mean, people. It was a, it was a huge problem. So I interviewed every living member of my family. And at that point, my parents were still alive. But I want to just read to you. And I, I pulled out my paper on uh, uh, you know my family journey. I've only showed this genogram to two people my whole life: the professor and Jerry once. Uh, because it was, it's so it's so raw, it's so intimate. And so I pulled it out in preparation for this blog. And it's just intense. So I'm, I'm going to read to you the, the end, uh, two paragraphs from the, the end of my summary to my professor after having do- spent a year on this. And uh, to give you a sense of, of the kind of impact this kind of work can have on you and, of course, then all those people around you. Here's what I wrote. This project humbled me by forcing me to look at the sins and unhealthy patterns in my entire family system over generations, some of which are now somehow in my genetic code, which I continue to work through by God's grace. These include, and I start, here's my list, you know, uh, crime, going outside authority and rules, affairs, patriarchy, and destructive sexism, absentee fathers, dominating women, addictive and highly intense personalities, indecisiveness, poor boundaries, unhealthy dependence on others, lack of contentment, shame, and a lack of self-respect or toleration of abuse. I'm thankful for, to Jesus and the opportunity to step outside and reflect on our system. I'm also inspired by the positive legacies of my family history, music, art, education, hospitality, family, loyalty, and openness to spirituality and emotional expressiveness. I, I hope I can recapture some of the best of my family traditions and pass them on to my children. But I, I, I close with two final questions. I have one or two final questions in closing. Does this study provide any insight into why I became a pastor, a profession of contempt in my family, why I became a pastor of a church family in New York City among people from whom all my family has run? One uncle remarked to me while reflecting on the fact that he and his siblings had wasted their lives trapped in the family pastry shop. He, re- he said this, we were trapped in the bakery business. Now, Pete, you're trapped with a church in Queens. You can't leave. And all those people depend on you. And when I, when I reflect on the high lack of differentiation in our family, it does concern me. My sister commented the reason she and her husband tried so hard to be pastors unsuccessfully was because in the church, they found for the first time a hope for a healthy family. Mike, this had been part of my motivation as well. I can't see clearly enough for now to answer those questions. Now was the end of my paper. My professor wrote this, you know, in her comment on the side here. Why wouldn't you seek out health and wholeness through a family of faith? It makes sense that's part of the good news of the gospel, that in Christ we're becoming new, changed, more whole, and healthy. Hopefully you aren't trapped in the church. That is, you could leave unless you have formed codependent relationships. Right, powerful, you know, and so uh, it, it was just a it was a, a great process, and then my differentiation. I continued to grow in it as I moved into a uh, exposure to monastic spirituality and church history from a genogram perspective, the revolutionary truth of of I looked at my own history and within evangelicalism and uh, then two thousand years of church history, and it really helped me grow of not being afraid of what people think that there are Christians around the world and different traditions than my own and. That while I may be, I'm an evangelical theologically, but I recognize that we've got our own gaps and, and to begin to learn and draw very consciously from the larger church around the world. That was huge. And then, of course, my growing differentiation has, has happened even more as I've released our four girls' daughters into young adulthood. They're between 25 and 34 now. That's, that'll, do, that'll help you grow in differentiation. And then, of course, doing succession uh, in 2013 uh, really helped separate my identity from the role. Uh, in fact even so just I'm in this whole process, even this past week I had another moment of not overfunctioning, uh, which is one of the, my biggest vulnerabilities. I do for people what they could and should do for themselves. And it comes out of my whole child to take care of my mom. Uh, and overfunctioning is a manifestation of anxiety. And all through my leadership to this day, uh, I'm still learning not to overfunction because you see w- when we spare people their pain, and their process and are overprotective by rescuing them, we actually increase their dependency and we increase their lower level of functioning. We hurt their spiritual lives. Uh, and, you know, so I, I I had a moment of even my own relationship and some ministry stuff that I'm doing and, and actually let said that some of this, this is the end. I'm going to let it go from this point forward. And everything was fine. It was really about me uh, and my you know, my trigger and anxiety. So just, you know, I'm still growing in differentiation. I'm still growing in my not over-functioning. Uh, and uh, so you want, always want to observe, you know, what gets triggered in you. And so you want to think, I, you know, I've got this great story, but I'm going to hold off on it here. Um, so I want you, again, I want to encourage you to think leadership as an inner work to define yourself in Jesus, not growing in expertise. And remember, you're part of three families if you're a leader in the church. Your family of origin, your present family, if you're single or married, And then the church as a family. And all three of these are plugged into the same electric current. What happens in one family affects the other two. And unresolved system issues in your family of origin are going to produce symptoms in the others. That's why we want to work on our family of origin so that it really does transform the others. And I love this Hasidic tale. It's somewhere in one of the books, uh, or day-by-day books, uh, about a Hasidic rabbi on his deathbed who said this, and I, and I leave this with you on this section. When I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. And now, as an old man, I know I should have started by changing myself, if I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state, and who knows, maybe even the world. So start with yourself. All right. And thirdly, finally, is think systemically around your church, movement, or denomination. In other words, you want to think systems, not individual. In other words, that you're, think of your church as a system as a whole or your denomination. And your local church has a genogram. And you want to ask yourself, what are the rules, How? what are the expectations of this genogram? What's the history of this genogram? Uh, positive and negative legacies. What changes do I want to make? What do I want to discard? What do I want to keep? And you want to become aware, because if you can name and break the negative things, you can break their demonic power. Are there any secrets here? We want to, you know, talk about. Get. We don't want to have secrets. Again, secrets are just are, are major league source of demonic activity. And and so I, I told the pastor just recently that after you do the team exercise that I'm recommending to you to do. Uh, on our, from our website, EmotionallyHealthy.org team. Do that. Explore your genogram. Do it. I, I'll lead you through it with the team. There's handouts and everything that go with it. But I said to him, I said, after you spend the first week on that, spend a second week just discussing your church's genogram, legacies, positive and negative, and what are the areas you want to begin to talk about and break in your family, and how do you want to do that with the whole church? Because they had some significant trauma that is really impacting their present that they've got to look at. And again, remember, the American church has a genogram, again, with racism and, celibri- cel- and uh, slavery. Evangelicalism has a genogram, which I, I'm very aware is super active, very evangelistic. You know, Wesley, Whitfield, bringing the gospel to Factory and Field, Billy Graham, the four spiritual laws. It's a good legacy. But the, a weakness of evangelicalism has always been discipleship formation. And now, in light of where we're living in, in, in as a culture, it is a, it's a massive problem. That's what we're trying to address here. Then you want to look at your movement or your denomination and, and, and the positive and, and negative legacies and what are some areas you want to really look at and break. And uh, So I've done, I've done really probably thousands of genograms at this point for, with people from all over the world. And every family is marked by sin and pain, regardless of how wealthy it is or where they are in the world, all ages. And like Ed Friedman writes in his book, Generation to Generation, we, we, we want to make sure we're not a church or ministries that encourage immaturity and irresponsibility. So we want to begin as teams thinking theologically, thinking of leadership as first the inner work of defining ourselves, and then secondly is, you know, expertise, but it's really our our inner work. And thirdly, we want to think systemically, think of the whole, and are there some elephants in the room in this system that really need to be addressed? This is holy work, everybody, uh, and let's do the work of the church of laboring till Christ be formed in us and in our churches that uh, we truly might develop ministries and give teams that are a gift or churches that are a gift to the world. But Let's start with us as teams. So again, let me invite you to explore the uh, your genogram. Go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash team. And blessings to you. It's been great to be with you. Thank you very much uh, for listening. I've really enjoyed going through lots of my notes and getting my thoughts together uh, for this podcast. So great to be with you. Send comments and look forward to being with you again. God bless you. Bye-bye.